Welcome to Biblically Speaking. I'm your host, Cassian Blino, and I just wanted to welcome everybody here who's tuning in. I am so grateful that you're listening to this and that you find this just as interesting as I do. Uh, for those of you who may be turning tuning in for the first time ever, you picked a good one. I'll just start off there because this is, again, one of those podcasts that have changed my life uh, just because it's information I have been seeking, wondering, asking about for a long time, uh, especially right now where anti-Semitism just continuously is everywhere you look. And I just don't understand why, like what is up with the Jews that everybody hates? I don't get it. Um, and that's what we talk about today is a quick history lesson on how Jewish faith became Christian faith. And what is the tie there? And what is the source there? Because it to me feels very different, but it's not at all. Where us Christians came from. So we should understand how we got there. But before we get into that, if you are new here, this is biblically speaking. And the way that it came about was I am a curious and confused Christian that for my entire life wanted to know and love the Lord and the living Christ, but I couldn't. How was I supposed to? I didn't get it. I didn't have any education. And how do you love and know somebody that you don't know anything about? And I went to church, I went to Bible study. I was in a Christian household, but yet still here I was a very lukewarm Christian. And I just wanted someone to explain it to me like I'm five years old, because that's how I felt in the Christian faith is five years old's worth of knowledge. And after years of not being able to find it, I just felt like God was like, that's because it's up to you, baby girl. So I did. And now here we are. And what I do is I am the curious and confused Christian asking theologian experts, pastors, rabbis, people that know way more than me, who have spent time in school, in seminary, in the books, with the experiences, I'm going to ask them the questions that just don't make sense to me. And I hope that you as a listener share the same concerns or the confusions or the curiosities. And now you can sit in the same seat that I do and we can get our questions answered. And through that uh, understanding, Jesus is more accessible He's more accessible because we know him better. And you can only love your friend more the more you learn about them. You can only love your sister more the more time you spend with them. And through that, my faith is deepening. And uh, I'm really appreciative for those that are joining me on this journey because, to be honest, I don't care if nobody's listening. This is just me talking to myself in a room, but I am so glad to be here. I have learned so much. And this is one of those episodes where you kind of walk out differently because I've got Dr. James said, Said Lasek, oh my gosh, I kept messing up his name. I'm so sorry, James. But uh, you're going to listen to us speak for an hour. And to be honest, we weren't supposed to talk about this. We had an entirely different topic. But James is really smart. And he can go on and on about, oh my gosh, I want to say anything. But his specific area of focus is translations of the Bible, the history of the Bible, history in general. He went to seminary. He was a pastor. And today's focus was a very specific verse, but we didn't even get there because I was I was asking different questions. So it's my fault. But we ended up spending the entire time focusing on how did Jews become Christians? And the answer surprises you. It makes sense. And that's kind of what happens when we examine the truth and the history is we think it's one thing, but it's actually something that makes way more sense. And it's totally logical. And, you know, it kind of works itself out. And that's exactly what happens here. And it shocks you. And it honestly kind of scares you with just kind of the unveiling of how the wrong person in power or 
a certain person in power with a very focused belief system can create kind of a waterfall of events because of the events that occurred before. And now they just build and build and build and it creates anti-Semitism and prosecution because there were years before that justify the prosecutors. And, and now we're in 2023 and we still see it. And I don't know, it makes a lot of sense. It's saddening. It's sobering, but it's very informative. And because of it, I love my Jewish brothers and sisters more. I see where they come from. I see what they're going through. And that's the point of this. That's the point of this podcast is to see and understand and feel. So uh, if you're still listening, welcome. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy. Hello. Hello, James. How are you? Good. How are you, Cassian? I'm doing really well. I am so glad to have you back on the podcast. I'm excited to be back. Yes, it's good. This topic today is so timely. Um, I wanted to say before, I I feel like there's a motif going on, and this is mostly a personal one, but on the idea of Jewishness and Christianity and where that overlaps. And I think that this is more of like a personal thing because I'm Christian. My friends are Jews. There's a lot of anti-Semitism going on. And not that I don't love my Jewish friends, but you know, where's like the religious significance, you know, you know how to love your neighbor in the Bible. And I feel like going to church, you're around your Christian friends or your Christian family, but we don't really get taught on how to love your Muslim or your Jewish or your Buddhist or Hindu, you know, you don't really be told how to really appreciate their faith because I guess in the back of my head, I'm like, well, they're not of my faith. So how's it hard to appreciate their faith? And that being said, Jesus was a Jew. All of this kind of came from Judaism and then it became Christianity. And I think what I'm really missing personally is that link between the two. So I'm really excited about the topic today because we're going to be exploring Jewishness in the Bible. Yes. And and maybe I can speak to a couple of issues that maybe cause that separation for us in, in the modern world. Um, when we think about New Testament studies and Christian studies. Uh, a lot of folks that deal with Christian theology and even a lot of people that are uh, New Testament professors are uh, only marginally aware of the Hebrew Bible and uh, the Jewishness that's uh, involved in the Hebrew Bible and its relationship to the New Testament. For years, uh, to develop a New Testament professor, a person would take, you know, a lot of Greek a lot of uh, theologies as they relate to the Gospels and Pauline letters, uh, Johannine letters, uh, maybe even Revelation. It depends on the person's preference there probably, and maybe their own denominational preferences. Uh, but, you know, the Gospels, Pauline literature would be big parts of the theological uh, training for a New Testament professor. The Greek language would be primary. But the typical degree program would not involve Hebrew grammar, Hebrew and so text. that would exclude the Jewish faith? Not necessarily, but it excludes a large body of literature being examined at the same level uh, that the New Testament's being examined with. And because it's excluded simply because the language isn't learned uh, in the degree program and the texts aren't studied in their original context, that it leaves a gap in the learning process for the average typical New Testament professor. Okay, so, maybe I'm a bit confused, but you're saying yeah. the Bible was translated in Greek and Hebrew, 
And in the Greek versions, you're getting the Johannine, the New Testament, the Pauline, all of like the gospels, but in a certain language that is maybe more understandable. But when it comes to that version in Hebrew, it's not as well understood. Or is that a completely different set of books? It's a different set of books. So oh. the, the Hebrew Bible is from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, And we call it the Old Testament, generally speaking. Oh, okay. (laughs) And then the Greek begins with the Gospel of Matthew and goes to Revelation. Oh, why was that separated like that? Was that like a time timely thing? Big time difference. So like when Moses is writing the the books of Moses, it's about 1450, 1450 years before Christ, give or take a few decades. Um, so it's 1500 years before Christ, Moses was writing the New Testament. The, the, uh, I'm Genesis, sorry, the Old Testament. Yeah, the Torah, the first books of the Old Testament. So this is a thousand and a half, a millennia and a half before Christ. Moses sits down and writes these books. I'm sorry and if then, this is confusing, but was the Torah a part of a book of the Bible or, and then now it's become just Jewish faith just reads the Torah? The Torah is the name for the first five books. The book Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as a set are the Torah. Uh, Today, that is still consistent. That's the Torah, yes. What? Oh my gosh. I had no idea. So the Torah and the first five books of the Old Testament are the same writing? Same thing, yes. What? But it's in Hebrew. Yes. How the, is our faith different? It sounds like we're we're in the, the same stuff. <laughs> we should be more similar than probably how things have turned out. That 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 is the, the so the the Torah or the the main text for Judaism as it is is the same books that we have in our English Bibles as Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Why didn't I know this before? This is so cool. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, so the uh, the so Moses is writing that about fifteen hundred years before Jesus comes, right? Yeah. So in between those fifteen hundred years, the Psalms are written. David writes the Psalms. Different prophets write some of the prophetic books. Isaiah and some of them are earlier. Jeremiah's later, and then finally at the tail end is Malachi and Joel and Habakkuk and some of those guys. So all of those are written. Uh, in a time period of about a thousand years, from okay. about 1450 uh, before Christ to about 440 or 450 before Christ, and then so, no writings for those like remaining remaining 400 years. That's the question. What got wrote in between there, and what is it, and how valuable is it for our for our study? There's actually quite a few books that were written in between, but uh, those are what we call Second Temple Jewish literature. Um, so you have in some Bibles, they have a bunch of those books, uh, at least 14 of them, and they might be called Apocrypha. That's another word that's used to talk about those books that are not part of the Hebrew Bible per se, and they're not part of the New Testament. They're in between. Okay. Um, some of those books are are historical. Um, you can get them as a, you can go buy a copy of the Apocrypha and. Oh, but they're not in the Torah and they're not in the Bible. They're not in the Torah. They're not in the Tanakh, which is the whole Old Testament. Um, so they're not in that either. Uh, and they're not in the New Testament. 
And some some English Bibles do include them in a little section in between. Uh, they'll just call it the Apocrypha if they do. Most English Bibles don't. They don't include it. And one of the first reasons that they were not included, because the first Bibles, they all had it. Yeah. And then when the printing press was invented, and especially when commoners wanted their own Bible, they re, they took those out because uh, they didn't consider them canonical anyway. They figured they would save on costs by by not oh, economical. Them. Economical, yes. Okay. Okay. After so you're saying several centuries. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just trying to like filter this back because this is so much, and <laughs> my brain is moving slow today. So you're saying that there are is a whole section that was originally in the original text of the Bible that maybe like a couple hundred, maybe a thousand people have read, but us today are missing a huge chunk of the original couple books of the Bible. They're just not really talked about. They're not known. They're not part of the faith, but they were in the original formation of the Christian faith. That's that's the tricky part. They were around, but who considered them Bible? That was the hard part. Um, did oh, everyone so they could have just think... been like historical text. Yeah, and and so once the Jewish canon was solidified, they did not include those books. And so canon, canon is like a, a list of uh, books that are certified as uh, accurate and true, um, oh. inspired by God, and so forth. And so oh. this, there was a council uh, that took place around the Sea of Galilee uh, by the Pharisees. Uh, sometime after a lot of the New Testament had come out. And they they made a council to think back all the Jewish books and uh, close the canon, so to speak, on which books are considered for religion and practice. When they did that, they did not pick any of those books. And it's also when you read them, it's not 100% certain that you want to use them in church anyway. As, you know, as doctrinal or practice books or books to grow from, because they don't always speak to issues that are are relevant for growing um, one's faith on. They are often very good historical books. I was um, just about to say, they're probably worth the read, but it doesn't mean, I think, yeah, in my head, and that's just me being in between the millennial and Gen Z, I immediately go to the, you know, it's the church wanting to hide something. So they took out the book. They want to control it. You know, I go to the conspiracy theory, but that's interesting. I've definitely heard that there are books of the Bible that they're really hard to find. They're locked away in some vaults in the Vatican, whatever it might be. And that's good to hear that it just, the end game of them not being included was because they were going to be more distracting than they were forming in your faith. But is this this would be like the Book of Enoch. Is that that's that... that's an example? Actually, that one is not usually in some apocrypha lists either. But um, that was also a piece of literature from that time that's probably relevant for our study. But what what I think of about the the apocrypha and other uh, Second Temple Jewish literature books is that they were important enough for first century people to be reading and thinking about. It, that also our New Testament authors were familiar with them and the, and the ideas within them, sometimes quoting from them, sometimes depending on their logic, that they're useful. Whether we should be using them, let's say, to make the Sunday morning sermon from or not, that's a different question. But mm. using them to help us better understand both the Hebrew yeah. Bible and the New Testament, I think, is helpful. 
So they were more contextually useful at the time when people were kind of going from Old Testament to New Testament. The people that were kind of living at the time of the New Testament were saying, this is good context for us. This is relevant for us at this time period, whereas today it's unrelatable. We wouldn't be able to really understand it or see why it was important. They're easy to dismiss, honestly. Uh, because we don't see, for example, sermons arising from them and things like that. But they're useful to understanding two things, at least that I've been able to tell, how Daniel's prophecies actually get fulfilled, uh, because we don't see them get fulfilled inside the chapters of the Hebrew Bible. And when we open up our New Testament, it's it's already over. I was and about so, to say, prophets are pretty gray area for me in the Christian faith. Yeah. I kind of want to go back to one of my earlier statements. Uh, yeah, we're getting how, pretty off track. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Just because it's relevant to your, your last statement, um, how New Testament professors and Old Testament professors at your typical seminaries are trained. They're usually trained in a track that includes the languages for that testament, the theologies that are coming from that testament. What I mean by that is theological concepts. And then that's how they build their professorship. And most people that are New Testament professors, Old Testament professors, don't know what the other one does. You would think you'd be taught on the whole Bible. Well, the the problem is it takes too long for a person to train equally well in both. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, let's say, for example, your typical Masters of Divinity degree is, uh, well, it used to be 90 hours. It's now 72 credit hours. Um, once they lowered the standard to 72, nobody's going to offer a 90 anymore. Uh, but even at the 90-hour one, uh, if you think about credit hours, a typical class is three hours. So with a 90-credit-hour program, you're going to take 30 total classes, no more. A language sequence, to do a language well, you're going to take two, three credit hours of a language. So that's six hours. Uh, So two classes, if you will, of Hebrew. Uh, Then you're going to take what's called uh, advanced Hebrew grammar. That's another term, another semester. And then you're going to take something called exegesis. So that's 12 credit hours, just getting one basic language sequence down. Um, Then you're also going to want to take some books in the specific class on the book of Jonah, a specific class on the book of Genesis, a specific class on Psalms, just so that you have something from the writings, something from the prophets, and something from the Torah. So you get Mm. the three main divisions of the Hebrew Bible in the training. Well, now you're up to seven classes out of 30. And the typical person finishing an MDiv also needs things in church history, practical ministries, how to run a church a board, how to how to understand my own denominational history. That's important, right? And so once you start stacking all these things into a program, you end up with 12 hours at best on one language and yeah. nine hours at best on the books that are that you need to study in depth. Yeah. And uh, so you're you're sitting at pretty close to most of your degree mapped out for you and you've only dealt in one of the two. Yeah. And the same yeah. is true for the other one. Something inside of me told me that 
getting going to seminary schools, just really understanding the whole book of the Bible and full stop, that's it. But you don't think about the history and the languages and the development and then the significance and that it just goes on and on and on. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> Let's so, go back to Jewishness and kind yeah. of the development, how there was the Torah, the Hebrew, and then there was the New Testament and Greek. Tying that together and kind of how we separated, yeah. how we went from a Jewish Messiah to a Christian faith. Yes. So the Hebrew books are written in a time period when the Jewish people are using Hebrew as their main language. Right. After the um, the, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, when they go to Persia, go to Babylon and then Persia, and then they return to rebuild, the main language is going to be Aramaic now. Rather than Hebrew, the main language becomes Aramaic. Now, in this, in the region of Jerusalem, Hebrew was still spoken, uh, but most of the land was speaking Aramaic. And then um, Jerusalem and Judea is still using Hebrew, even as far as Jesus' time. But Galilee is not. And uh, the rest of what we know of as Israel is using Aramaic. After, after the Aramaic... Uh, introduction so the some of the books of the hebrew bible are actually written in aramaic if they're written in that time period so we find the last books written written in a different language about 150 years later we have someone called alexander the great this is still before jesus Mm -hmm. okay so now we're like 300 years out from jesus's birth that's right right around 330 to 300 yep Alexander the Great takes over as the the sole ruler in Greece, and Greece has been whipped up on by the Persians a few times, so he decides he's going once and for all and unseat the Persians from power. Well, that means global domination. He goes around and starts mopping up and crushing, and the next thing you know, Persia's flat. It's done. And uh, so he's crushed Persia in several swift series of battles, and he's conquered Egypt, what we know of is Israel, what we know of is Iraq, Iran, and most of the stands, Afghanistan, all of that falls under the, the Greek empire that's being built. And this is like a Persian war, uh, right, between Greece and Persia, essentially, but essentially. Christian Jewish faith. So faith was playing a role in this, or was that kind of a specific This is the region? setting. This is a setting for what happens next. What happens next is your next generation of Jewish persons is growing up in a Greek-speaking world. And so the language now changes from Aramaic to Greek. Um, So Paul, in his hometown where he grew up, Greek was the spoken language by, by his time. Where Jesus was growing up, Aramaic was the local language. But people still spoke Greek because they needed to trade outside their borders. And in Jerusalem, Hebrew is the spoken language. So when you went to do the Passover and deal with the priest at the temple, you had to switch from Aramaic to Hebrew. But when you went up north to visit Jews in Turkey, you had to switch to Greek. So when when the time of the New Testament comes around, most of the Jewish-speaking world is actually speaking Greek. Only a relatively few are speaking Hebrew. And... Wow. Uh, Something took place about 100, 150 years after Alexander the Great's conquest. The whole Jewish world pretty much is using Greek so much 
that the the rabbis uh, get together, and there was some influence from an outside source as well, but they approved a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint. Um, It's also called the LXX. So uh, this Greek Bible is the one that takes us forward into the first century when when Jesus is growing up and the apostles are um, going around building the church. Most of their quotations inside the New Testament of the Old Testament passages are actually in the Greek Septuagint. They're quoting Got the Greek. It. Got it. Uh, and, that's probably 96% anyway. That's the rough number. And this is inclusive of those um, books that were taken out of, I forgot the name. The Apocrypha or the other ones that weren't actually ever called Apocrypha, the Second Temple Jewish literature. Some of them were cited. Some of them were just mentioned. Sometimes mm-hmm. a detail would be mentioned because it was popularly known stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's say, for example, we had a book years ago written called Moby Dick. We did. Uh, we could make a reference to it today and said, oh, that happened just like it did in Moby Dick, right? So uh, Moby Dick was a was a big whaler story about uh, in the in the 1800s, right near the end of the whaling industry. So it was kind of a story to wake people up and maybe stop the whaling abuses, right? Uh, we wouldn't need a story like that today because people aren't really doing that. But uh, we still remember that story and, uh, and we reference it. Uh, another example could be like saying, oh, and we, and we cite a famous movie. But, mm. uh, or, or this happened just like Star Wars, right? These are great examples. And so in the New Testament, they're going to reference things from well-known literature. And yeah. this literature was well enough known that it got these offhand allusions. Yeah. Um, and sometimes ideas in them would be even expanded on in the New Testament sometimes. The other thing that we see with some of the, maybe maybe we just call them extra books, maybe we call them uh, uh, Second Temple Jewish literature. That's my favorite word for it. Okay. Um, because the Jewish community was who was using them. And they were after the second temple was built, which was Zerubbabel's temple, after the rebuild from when Cyrus tells the Jews to go back and rebuild the wall, the city, and the temple. Um, a person named Zerubbabel rebuilds and makes a new temple. Um, it was It was said it wasn't as good as Solomon's, but it was still good, and people rejoiced that were younger because they hadn't seen one yet. People that were older wept because they knew uh, Solomon's was way better than that. And so, you know, they there were people of different generations having different responses to it. But that temple is the one that's still around when when Jesus comes in, right? So Zerubbabel's temple was kind of simpler, plainer, but the guy named Herod the Great restructured it, rebuilt it, made it beautiful again. So by the time Jesus actually arrives, it's been beautified. So it doesn't look as bad as it did to that first generation that saw it. So that's the that's what we mean by Second Temple. It was it. built by Zerubbabel, rebeautified by Herod the Great, and then it was destroyed in 70, AD 70. So that's the Second Temple. So from the time of its being built until AD 70, that period is called Second Temple Judaism. And literature written in that includes these books. So 
how do we go from a Hebrew Torah to Greek Gospels has a lot to do with the fact that the Jewish people themselves are speaking different languages in different millennia. Because of social circumstances, wars, yeah, wars and conquests, and who are the rulers now, that sort of thing. Okay, so that explains why there's two separate languages. But I guess, what was the bridge between Jewish and Christian then? Yeah, that one's more difficult to explain. But <laughs> going going into the earlier, what I was saying about the two tracks, Old Testament professors have their track and New Testament professors have their track. This right. kind of thing has been happening for several hundred years inside Christian circles. Oh. And because of that, New Testament professors are usually unaware of what Old Testament professors are dealing with and the texts they are reading. And Old Testament professors are often unaware of what the New Testament is doing because that's not part of their program of study. That huh. wasn't something they developed expertise in. So what happens over time is that if you're ignorant about something, you tend to say things about that other thing that aren't quite accurate. And these things don't really get tested or proved or uh, adjusted because nobody's checking. Mm. Yeah. And then very few people have the expertise to critique these things because who's going to do a double MDiv? One in Old Testament, one in New Testament. It doesn't happen. And when, when I went and did my MDiv, I did a double major, which is similar. But what it meant is I had to substitute things out of my degree program in order to do both Hebrew and Greek, do both Greek exegesis and Hebrew exegesis, study intensely Greek New Testament books and Hebrew Old Testament books at a, at a pretty high level of depth and study the critical issues that scholars have raised for both the New Testament and the Old Testament. That's a massive thing in and of itself. But by doing that, I had to uh, cut out courses that were maybe, I don't know, practical ministry related or uh, church history related. I did study history. as a, I, I love history, so I always uh, was, was going to anchor myself in the historical things as they develop. That was not a, I never needed a degree in history to want to learn history. But um, I felt like there's some things I can learn on my own. There's some things I need pushed to learn. And if I'm going to get a grasp of how the New Testament and Old Testament relate to each other, I need to study both carefully. And I think in my whole seminary experience, there was only one other person I knew of that did that. So there's, and he's my friend, we, we go to conferences together and um, we live not too far from each other as it happens. Uh, but it's rare because you, you have to give up something in the degree program if yeah. you want to get both of these tracks uh, or else you have to do two degrees and convince somebody that you need to do two degrees of the same apparent level. Yeah. Um, that's, that's hard to do. And a typical person who's, deciding to be a pastor of a church also would go get an MDiv, uh, but they're going to concentrate more on practical ministries uh, because of the, the social issues that face the church. They, they need to study some things that uh, a scholar wouldn't, wouldn't find helpful. Um, and so I was pretty much on the, the, the track that was for scholars rather than pastors, but I was a pastor and I was pastoring. but. Um, 
where I was in my ministry context, I, I felt that I was well equipped in the pastoral role and um, I didn't need to do an MDiv in practical ministries uh, okay. to do that. Um, yes, I will have limitations uh, in, in that area, but um, I, I also find that my main role is as a pastor isn't being the lead pastor generally. I could be if I need to be, but that's not my main role. My main role is in discipleship, discipleship and equipping ministries. I've also been trained to be a chaplain as well, and sometimes a church needs a chaplain. Um, and if a church is a rather large church with many people in hospital or nursing home, sometimes having a chaplain on, on staff is the best way to go. So and that'd to be make... a Catholic faith? Um... No, it's a chaplains can be of any denomination and any uh any group but what a chaplain is is a person who can go into a healthcare facility who's been certified to be in a healthcare environment and uh provide religious services to people who who need it and it, advice and counseling to anyone who asks for it so wow. i've done that uh, a large number of my years Wow. I feel like I'm I talking to got... one of the most educated people in <laughs> the Bible. Well, I don't know uh, that necessarily, but one one of the things that I see is where we have our typical degree program set up and our what our typical seminary shoots for. Don't create a person who's capable of moving between both Hebrew Bible and Greek New Testament and connecting the dots. So that is a bit of a lacking in the connection for like understanding the Bible as a whole, especially on a simple level for someone like me who wants to know the highest level. They, I just want to know the cream skimmed off the top. That requires so much depth and knowledge and understanding. That is a very big undertaking for somebody. So maybe us as Christians, when, yeah. when we have questions, maybe we're asking a legitimate question, but to fully answer it correctly takes a level of schooling that not everybody has. And and probably not one that most pastors have, and I don't know what the number would be, but if I look if I look at my own band of pastors that I'm part of, there's probably three of us out of a hundred that know our biblical Greek, and maybe two of us out of a hundred that know our biblical Hebrew, and well, only one of us that knows both, and that would be me. But um, that's typical, actually. That's not unusual. Right, right. No, that's I, that's just news I've, to me. I've I've heard a lot of pastors say, "Well, they put me through Greek in seminary," but that that statement belies a simple problem. They didn't learn their Greek in seminary. They learned it quickly and forgot it quickly, mm. and so they aren't using it, and they can't use it to ferret out things. Um, right. They so will there's have misunderstanding and misinterpretation issues that they're then feeding to their congregation? It probably shouldn't happen to that extreme level. It can. Um, I think most pastors ground themselves in the theological traditions of their denomination. Okay. And, and somebody within their structure would know enough to steer them away from really big pitfalls. Yeah. And usually people who have stumbled into a pitfall and wrote a book about it, usually their book gets critiqued at their um, conferences. So they know some of the things that are out there and how to avoid them. 
So I think most pastors avoid the extremes of that by being connected to other people who are looking out for problems. But it is potentially possible for a pastor to mislead people. But the place where I think it happens unavoidably is not any not any serious misleading, but when we when we depend too much on a tradition to interpret the Bible for us, then we're we're eventually become blind to counter evidence. Ooh, go on. So sometimes there's a a little fact that's just there that's bothering you, but you don't know how to deal with it. So it's like it 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 seems like it could unravel one of my points that I might want to make. But if no one in my circle of folks that I'm bouncing ideas off of develops this thing, eventually it gets explained. You're going to have to use an example. You're kind of losing me. Yeah. I'm I'm not thinking of an example while I'm saying it. I'm just aware of the problem. So I apologize for that. Would but, you say like a tradition? Uh, I immediately thought of a Jewish tradition, kind of, um, you know, the bathing tradition or what? Sure. I can explain a little better. Um, when when I'm referring to a tradition of Christian practice, I'm referring to things like what major a major denomination would be. That would be a particular tradition to think about the Bible from. So, a oh couple gosh, of I have examples. Like Catholic examples. <laughs> well, yeah. So we could say, well, according to the Catholic tradition, we think about the Bible this way. According to the Calvinist tradition, we think about the Bible this way. According I don't to even know the, what that is. <laughs> So John Calvin was one of the reformers in the um, early modern period who was uh, trying to reform some of the Catholic things in his day to something different. And so he was one of the reformers. Martin Luther was another reformer. Okay. Um, and so he, he, but they both were knew each other. They both were around at the same time, but they're in two different countries. And so there's a system of thought that's called Calvinist that develops from John Calvin's thought. And so there's a Calvinist way of thinking about right. scripture. Yeah, I'm back on track. Then there's a Wesleyan way of thinking about scripture. And that was based on another later person who comes along to kind of counter some of the rough edges of the reformers as well as keep reforming the church. And that man's name was John Wesley. Uh, he was an Anglican priest, never left the Anglican church, never went out and started his own group, so to speak. But it wasn't long after his death till his followers did. And so then they founded what we later know of as Methodism. So there's that's the, the way of thinking. So within different, maybe we can think of it this way, there's different schools of thought on how to read and interpret the Bible. Absolutely. And if a person belongs to one of these schools of thought, they tend to think about Scripture the same way. Absolutely. So that's where I'm coming from. And if, if a, let's say, a pastor belongs to one of these schools of thought, Maybe that's a better word than tradition. So uh, they're going to tend to think about scripture that same way. But you said that there was an issue. Maybe if they tie themselves to a fact that goes unnoticed and goes uncorrected. So are you saying, I mean, are you saying that maybe in the past there's been something in a certain faith that that school of thought tied themselves to that ended up being either untrue or problematic or not actually adhering to the core of the Christian faith? Well. I don't know if it goes to those extremes, but what would happen uh, is that sometimes you've got, I don't know, 200 items that are facts. And so what your job is as a theologian is to weave all of these facts together 
into like a tapestry where they make sense together. Okay. So I'm, I'm using metaphors here and I'm not thinking of concrete examples, but a job as a theologian is to make all of these f- seemingly random facts work together as a comprehensive whole. So then when you preach sermons on it, you can connect them to the fabric and say, well, this, this thought's related to that spot in the fabric. This one's related to that thought in the fabric. And that's nice. Um, but occasionally there's one of those little facts that just you can't decide where to fit it in the fabric. It doesn't fit neat over here. Try to fit it down here. It doesn't work so well. And eventually we, the, the tendency as well, it doesn't fit our fabric the way we thought of it. So we'll try to give an explanation for that random fact that we can't fit. And here's our explanation, and we're going to move on. Tradition A will do that with some little facts. If they can't seem to make them work in the fabric, they'll give explanations and move on. Someone else will say, well, those are the primary things I want to work into my fabric. They work up another fabric, a different traditional way of understanding scripture. It doesn't even sound they... like Christian faith anymore. Well, what we're dealing with is the thinking mind trying to grasp all of the, the nuggets of truth and make them fit. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with. And sometimes there's a tendency, if one is always interpreting within one's school of thought, to kind of ignore the little facts that don't fit the fabric so nice. Mm. And that's where I think the separation mentally between Jewishness and Christianity has happened. Whoa. Oh my yeah. gosh. That was a I don't think it was intentional. Up. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of things that had to fit into place to make that work. But this is historically how the Jewishness eventually gets stripped off of what we call Christianity and sold as a marketplace religion without so this the Jewish wasn't elements like... in it. It wasn't like a war where like the ending no. of the war kind of split a bunch of people. This was like a gradual dis- diaspora of people that just slowly began to reference themselves to a different school of thought than their previous Jewish community. That's part of it. And there's also some basic. <sighs> it's difficult for me to, I guess, correct me because I'm thinking if I and my grandmother and my great grandmother, my entire family was Jewish and then, Mm -hmm. and they saw, I don't know, I guess like if you're Jewish and then you meet the Messiah because you're alive during that time and then he dies and rises on the third day. And there's that, those miracles throughout his life, generations later, you slowly separate yourself from that. Isn't the core difference between Jewish and Christian is that Jews don't believe that he is the Messiah. So am I getting the timing wrong? No, that's basically um, how it, and I wouldn't say all of the Jews. I would say some of the Jews that would fit the profile because some, some Jews did believe he was the Messiah. So Got it. You, you have, you have that division among ethnic Jews. And, um, the other thing is, is when we go back into about the, so I'm, I'm going to kind of switch gears here and yeah. label a couple of other things historically that may have helped speed up the fracture between, mm-hmm. between, uh, help strip away, if you will, the Jewishness from our understanding of the New Testament. Um, one of those things happens right around the 400s. 
after Jesus. After, right. So in the earlier centuries, Jewish communities and Christian communities were constantly discussing these things with each other. Okay. This was we can find documents about this, and yeah, there were some instances where somebody says, "Okay, you're not welcome here. You got that idea? We don't want you here," and that kind of thing happened, but it wasn't large scale or widespread. This was down to the individual synagogue having a fuss. So, okay. and this could happen over any issue, not just a Messiah related issue. If somebody was a seller of something at the marketplace and their business had hurt someone else's business that was the donor to the to the uh, synagogue, they might not be welcome at that synagogue, right? So things, random things could cause disfellowshipping. And we, we see examples of disfellowshipping happen. There were certainly some times when the the Jewish synagogues that did not want to accept Jesus as the Messiah maybe would reject somebody coming in that preached that message. And I then see. there were other Jewish synagogues that welcomed the discussion and continued the discussion, did not convert to Christianity, so to speak. And then there were others that did. So, And those Christianity communities were like, we want the whole New Testament and the Torah and the Old yeah. Testament, whereas maybe the people that were rejecting were saying, we'll just stick with the Torah. And and here's another thing that goes in with that. Most early churches did not have a New Testament in their church. They only had the Hebrew Bible. So they were just Jewish. They were some sometimes they were started with Jewish ethnic Jewish uh, community members, but many times even when the community shifted to Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, they would have uh, still only had the Hebrew Bible as their Bible. They would have had okay. collections of Gospels, maybe collections of Paul's letters, maybe. And we're saying maybe because the spreading of these documents takes some time. Yeah. And it's not until around the year uh, 360 that we actually have a document with a list with, of all the New Testament books on it. So it's, it's years before somebody... Uh, decides, okay, we need to actually set a limit on what's in the New Testament and what's out. And, and that uh, would be the council. And that was the next council, right. So the er the earlier council we talked about was the Jewish council deciding the books of what we now call the Old Testament. This oh. council, close to the year 400, is the one that decides which books belong to the New Testament. So some of this stuff is still up in the air in terms of which book is accepted, which book is not, the, until that gets decided. But the thing is, is it was unanimously decided. So when, when the decision was reached, the, the, the list was cut off at 27 and no more. There were a few contenders. For example, the, a book called Shepherd of Hermas, another book called the Didache, a third book, um, slip in my mind now the name of it. My mind's tired, but the those two books at least were strong contenders. A lot of churches liked them, but they weren't universally accepted. And eventually, if they weren't universally accepted, they weren't included in the official canon. They still were recommended for good reading. So universally, that, so were they? How were they polling that globally from their own community? Would, did they just have representatives from different nations yeah. that kind of said, oh, "Okay, cool, cool," like? Your your big city churches would have started satellite churches in all the smaller cities. And so the leader in the big city church would have been the representative that voted. 
So, so okay. you're dealing with um, a sort of a hierarchical level of, of church leadership that was around yeah. in that time. And the leaders would have been sent to the council to vote. But they the decision was actually reached before they voted. It was as the data was coming in, they had absolutely no dissenters from the list. So it, 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 if, without a decision, it was already decided. Wow. There, there really wasn't any different decisions when, when, when that was uh, put to a vote. And this was just within the Christian slash Jewish community. This wasn't like representatives of Taoism and Buddhism. No, and no. yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I want to get off course, but I just wanted to no. check. Yeah. So yeah, this was, there would have been Jewish persons still in the, uh, like uh, in the, in the Christian communities, but by the 400s, you've had several things happen. You've had the the the, um, the late three hundreds, I want to say, uh, rather than four hundred. Uh, first of all, the first Roman emperor comes to the throne who declares Christianity as his religion. That's I'm sorry, happened. say that again. The first Roman emperor to declare Christianity as his religion comes to the throne. What would the religion would have been before? It would have been the Roman pantheon of Jupiter and the 12 gods and goddesses with Caesar being the one worshipped as the primary god. Oh, okay. So that's a big deal. It's a big switcheroo. And so his name is Constantine. And when he comes to rule, his mother had been converted to Christ. And so when he decided... He he actually was appointed... Because what happened with the Roman Empire in this period, there's a lot of fuss. And so instead of having one emperor try to rule it, they tried to rule it with four. Just have one person in each corner of the empire running a fourth of it. And that kind of brings that some of the other biblical passages from the four corners of the world uh, to a new level of meaning when you've got four rulers ruling each their own corner. Yeah. And uh, so he actually is sympathetic to the Christian cause. Most of the emperors had persecuted Christians and Jews alike up until this point. Uh, sometimes some emperors were heavier on their Jewish persecution, some were heavier on the Christians, but both of them got persecuted. Um, so he comes to the throne and he is Christian. That's what he decides. And uh, he actually has the cross painted on all his shields of his soldiers and everything just to make a big point. And it seems like his conversion was as serious as any could be estimated looking at historical resources. He he definitely opposes the Roman, what we might call pagan system of worship. Puts yeah, yeah. It, but that's the only step he makes. Two emperors later, that person makes Christianity the only really legal religion to practice, making all others illegal. Well, and so between the two of them, they put the nails in the coffin on the pagan religion. But by the time that the second decision is reached, now persecution of the Christians is over, but the sometimes intensifies the persecution for the Jews. Oh, because Jewish faith is now illegal. If it's not Christian. So, whoa! So that was like the first account of anti-Semitism, you'd say? Not the first instance of it, but the first instance of it under a Christian... Uh, emperor's decision. Wow. So it really, I, this is so interesting. I thought that anti-Semitism was based in like, 
the color of our skin or like, you know, the status, like economic status, but it really came from the preference of the leader at the time. The the leader kind of made things happen. Now, there were fusses because as you can realize, non-Christian Jews and Christian Jews would disagree about the Messiah. So Mm -hmm. we can expect that. Gentile Christians would also disagree with non-Christian Jews about the Messiah. So there was enough things to cause disagreement between peoples. But when Sounds like a lot of half and half. Which ones do you persecute? Right. Both being persecuted at the same time, hmm. the the intermingling of the communities was more happening. There were, mm-hmm. there were several things in history that caused division to increase. Yeah. But once this happens, it becomes very comfortable for Christian circles to say, oh, finally an end to the persecution. What's the cost? Oh, our fellow minglers are getting persecuted more. Mm. Is it okay to be comfortable here or should they stand out and say something? The saddest thing is, is we don't read about um, the kind of thing we would like to read about in the 400s and even going into 500. The, this the is rivalry was in so fierce. years. Yeah. Following Jesus' death. And so there was a lot of animosity happening inside the the Roman Empire as it's starting to crumble. Uh, because the Roman Empire has a great fall all about this same time. 495, Rome got sacked. So we're looking at some serious issues on the horizon for the Roman Empire at the same time that these big rivalries are starting to shape up. And, I'm not so good read... as history with you, but who did they get sacked by? <laughs> yeah, this is going to be um, different invading groups with the Huns and the Goths, and this kind of thing is going to start happening. It's not going to stop. Got Eventually, it. So it's a full from all sides fall. Got it. Yeah, and the Lombardians are in there somewhere. Um, so they're another invading Germanic tribe that comes in and Lombardians. Bashes. That's yeah, the Lombardians. Yeah, those are the uh, Germanic tribes that uh, have descendants now in northern Italy. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, so <laughs> it's one of the reasons Italy has three colors in its flag. The three colors represent the three major people groups that occupy Italy. The oh. top people group are the Lombardian invaders from the five and six hundreds. The middle band is the native Roman uh, Italians, and the bottom band is the Norman invaders that come from Normandy to invade them later. I thought it was because it represented the three ingredients in pasta sauce, you know, celery, (laughs) carrots, onion. (laughs) That's the specific colors, but why three? It's because there's been, for a long time anyway, three different peoples populating um, Italy. And okay. and they link back to these these two invasions, the Norman invasion of South Italy and the Lombardian invasion of North Italy. Well, this is the kind of thing that puts lots of pressure on the emperor of Rome, and he has to make peace with the barbarians uh, somehow, any way he can. He's losing everything. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of attempts. And some of the earlier attempts were to try to bribe the barbarians away, and they bankrupted their own selves doing it. Um, so... Large chests of money can only come out so often, right? And um, if it's enough to bribe away a major invasion, that has to be a lot of money. And the very first, uh, and it almost seems, well, that's another story. I don't want to 
<laughs> develop here, but this is where the Pope becomes powerful because the the leader of state decides to avoid the responsibility and sends out the church leader to do it instead. And so eventually the power of the state leader, the emperor, lands on the Pope instead of the emperor. At the, towards the end, the emperor abdicates and the Pope is running everything. That's why so we emperor... have a powerful medieval Pope. <laughs> So you're saying he decided Christian faith, a lot of power, a lot of violence. He put that power onto the Pope and then eventually just kind of stepped down and the Pope stepped up. Over many generations of the emperor, not yeah. the same person, but yeah. And so the first Christian emperor made Christianity legal. Yippee-yay. We're not going to get persecuted so badly now. Mm -hmm. Two emperors later, he made it the only legal. That guy made it the only legal religion. Now the persecution's landing on everybody but the Christians. Uh, including the pagans, um, which they weren't persecuted before. No reason that they needed to be persecuted, but they were. And then persecuted as in like jailed. Lots of different stuff, actually, and some of it a lot more horrid than jail. Got it. Okay. Yeah, you know, some people would lose their lives. Some people would get tortured. Some people would get banished, sent to the salt mines. Uh, a lot of different cruel punishments. Okay. Um. And persecution can be varied. It can be just, oh, you guys can't trade here, but our buddies can. That could be a form oh. of persecution. That's milder, but it's still real. And economic yeah. suppression is a big thing. That was yeah. also something. So the issues between Christians and non-Christian Jewish groups, uh, they they begin to separate in 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 reality so much by by the 500s that they're no longer communicating across that line analyzing texts together examining things and the two communities um end up separated quite a bit after that uh some of this is because of the emperor and the emperor's decision some of this is because communities didn't find a way to reach out in spite of the emperor and still have fellowship um a lot of things we can point at but the 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 core problem here is that once the the leadership of the church moves from a Jewish leadership because under the New Testament every church leader is a Jew mm -hmm. to gentile leaders there's it's not immediate it's not right away and it's not a cause really it's just a consequence along the chain of events but as yeah. the leadership moves to gentile shoulders they don't read the Hebrew. We we can read church fathers that barely could grasp something oh from the gosh, Hebrew yeah. text. They're reading wow. the Greek. And then by the 400s, the church fathers are struggling to read their Greek. Whoa. They need it in Latin or they can't read it. It now all we ties have, together. And so we have the beginning of people being involved in church leadership and uh, the training of church leaders as well, who don't read Hebrew, who don't read Greek. They're reading Latin. And some of the problems of the the church as a result are that people are reading only the Latin translation, deciding things about Christian faith and deciding things about uh, what to do with the Jews that aren't based on looking at the older texts. They're, they're based at looking at Latin translations and also traditional thinking. It's not just the Latin translation, it's traditional thinking. 
you you take these problems a few generations later, and that's why you have a, a reformation. There were people who were fed up with this, tired of this, and they wanted to reform things. At the time the Reformation happens, uh, there were instances in some of, just to pull one serious incident out of the hat, is the Spanish Inquisition. And it's only named Spanish because there's so many famous trials in Spain, but it's not limited to Spain. Um, the, The Spanish Inquisition was anybody who dissented from the Light I, the line item list of things that were considered important by the by the Christian leaders. If they dissented on any single point, they could actually lose their life. Dissented as in saying, "I don't believe in that." Right, or there's a, or it should be thought of this way instead of the way you thought of it. That would be dissension, and that could end up in somebody losing their life. Whoa! Oh my gosh, this is crazy. I I don't want to get too far because I just want to backtrack a second. That makes complete sense that it it kind of feels like that scene in Game of Thrones when you realize there's a whole war because of one tiny misunderstanding. You know, I don't know if you watch the show, but there was that one pivotal moment where you're like, this didn't need to happen. But it seemed like this times a thousand that very slowly over time, we just slowly drifted. And I see why it makes sense. But that is, wow. One thing though is, so Christian's they don't know the language. They can't reference it. They're moving forward full speed ahead with their um, New Testament in Greek. But how come the Jews didn't move forward referencing the New Testament? Or was that kind of the whole thing? Is they're like, we never were going to. So there's not a point. You know, like they weren't going to be the connector anyways. I think originally the 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 not Christian Jewish community did interact with the documents of the New Testament. But I think after a while, that wasn't deemed so important or so necessary because these books later became associated with uh, the individuals who would torment them, uh, persecute them, and individuals who would run the Inquisition. And so why would you want to invest years of studying these documents when they aren't important to your understanding of the Torah? And they aren't important to they're they're important for your oppressor, not not the uh, and, and so this this kind of thing also led to in many circles maybe uh, Jewish persons being less familiar with the New Testament documents as we call them New Testament documents. But there are such things as Hebrew gospels and Hebrew. Uh, there's there's groups of people who are studying them. Some of them have been recovered. Some of them have been um, kept alive by those who wanted to study the the Hebrew ones instead of the Greek ones, and so there there's some there's some groups that are studying them to see what what came down through the Jewish tradition about the New Testament, and so this kind of thing is studied today. Um, I don't I know very little about it except some of the people who are doing it, um, and it's fascinating to me, and I hope to take a look at some of these documents if I get a chance. Um, I'm, I've always been fascinated by how did we get our Gospels in the first place? Yeah. And there's a lot of unanswered questions. There was a convention of scholars in the 1800s that was a, a multinational, international is the right word, international group of scholars from many countries and languages who tried to solve the problem, how did we get our Gospels? And they started at this point and argued their way successively through a number of generations through several points, and eventually concluded they were back at the starting point and they didn't have an answer, and they disbanded. And we're talking about 
scholars who put their life's work into this lived and died, and their successor in their chair continuing their work, and then that person's successor continuing the work, only to realize we're back at the beginning. No I... answer. <laughs> and and so today, when you ask New Testament scholars, uh, how did we get our gospel? What's the answer to the synoptic problem? You get about 300 answers. Yeah, they're like, shut up. <laughs> we're not going there. <laughs> well, they'll give you their answer, but they know that this is a a widely disagreed upon topic, and there, there, it, there does not seem to be a consensus. The funny thing is, is we can find little random statements in the earliest references to our Gospels in the among the Church Fathers before this time period of the 400s that we were mentioning. That the 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 way that they received their Gospels is they got Matthew in Greek, Luke in Greek, John in Greek, Matthew in Hebrew, not Greek. And that fact has escaped most of the people that have tried to solve the problem. Why that one in Hebrew? Don't know. That's that's just the way that the earliest reporters on receiving the Gospels got them. And if Matthew was received in Hebrew, and then Mark, Luke, and John were received in Greek, and then hundreds of years later we start analyzing Greek Matthew, Greek, Mark, Luke, and John, and trying to figure out which one came first, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And we're looking at Matthew, and our earliest sources say it wasn't written in Greek to begin with. It was written in Hebrew. What we're mm. looking at is a translation. Mm. Um, we have to be. And um, yeah. how can we compare a translation while trying to say it's first? It can't be first if it's translation. And so it, I think that particular piece if it was properly assessed in some of the gospel theories, would revamp how they think of the problem. It can't be Wait, solved can yet. can you say that again, but simpler? Yeah. My brain did not yeah. understand that. So, for example, uh, maybe I can go into this a little bit. The, the, um, there's people that think Matthew was written first, and Luke written second, and then Mark abridges both of them into a smaller gospel. Okay. There's people that think Mark was written first, Matthew expanded it, and then Luke expanded it a different way. Okay. So these are two prominent theories. Um, when we start looking at the text, Luke seems to be more like Hebrew translated into Greek than the others do. It seems like there's places in Luke's document that the original wording was in Hebrew. But these are usually in places where he's reporting what someone told him. So we're we're dealing with the words of Mary, both before Jesus' birth and after his resurrection, that kind of thing. And so maybe he just has an oral report from her, and he's recorded it there, and that would explain why that the features look that way. The there are long places in the in those three gospels where. There's verbatim agreement between the passages talking about the same story. And then there's places where one gospel will go on at a stretch and the other one skips right over that part. And it's like when you see them having verbatim agreements, you, you don't think, oh, they picked up the same stuff from somewhere. What you think is, oh, they're copying from the other document. Because how did they get it word for word, 36 words in a row? You're right. That's too much to expect out of somebody who's just remembering an event That's 20 true, years yeah. later. Oh. So 
it's it's one of those kind of things, and it's it's really stumped the scholars. But what if the Gospels weren't originally written in Greek, and what we're looking at is translations, or at least a translation of Matthew? Then it makes sense why Matthew's looking at a document and copying what's in it. He's his job, not Matthew personally, but whoever translated Hebrew Matthew into Greek. So he would say, well, okay, this part is already done in Mark. All I got to do is look at Mark and I can write the words down. Yeah. I don't have to think through and translate this part exactly or um, do my own fresh translation of it. In other words, I can write yeah. what's what's in Mark. And so that would explain instances where they have word for word things. Yeah. And and it doesn't put the burden on trying to figure out which one came first when the evidence goes both ways. Right. Um, I, ha- I embarrassingly have to admit that I've been a Christian for my entire life, you know, stronger at sometimes than others. But I didn't know, especially not from church, that the Gospels were just four different perspectives on the same events, that there are okay. four different viewpoints on Jesus's life told from different people's perspectives. And, you know, Luke was more of the journalist, whereas, you know, John was yep. more the, the right hand guy at some points. I didn't know that. I, I honestly thought they were four different points in history or people living their lives, four different stories completely. and. I don't know. I feel like for any young Christian listening, like if you didn't know that now you do, because I definitely didn't know that for the longest time. Yeah. And and that's the amazing way to think about the four gospels as four different perspectives on Jesus's life told by four different people who had different walks in life. Yeah. So you've got one guy's a fisherman. Actually, two of them really are. One's a medical doctor and one's a tax collector. So mm-hmm. imagine if your local IRS agent um, your doctor that you go see for general practice and two two folks you found fishing one day all get together and write something on the same thing. They're not going to say the same thing the same way. It's I'm not so glad happen. you put it that way. Yeah, you've got two very highly educated individuals in completely different fields. One's yeah. in finance, the other's in medical practice. Yeah, And then two people who are very experienced in a particular thing of life like fishing but they're not highly educated formally in any given right. subject yeah yeah and so when they get together on something there's going to be points of difference um, right yeah and then when it's transcribed you're going to do kind of not shortcuts but the things that make sense to copy um wow I am so glad that you are so well-read in this, not just on the Bible and the translations, but in the history lesson of it. And this is a little bit my fault, but I have good and bad news. Uh, The the bad news is we didn't get to the original topic we were going to talk about today. (laughs) We didn't even touch on it. But the good news is, is that we can have another call on it. And this... This call today is something that I have been hungry to have because I didn't know how I was going to get answers to that question of how did we go from Jewish to Christian? What was the difference? And I feel so enlightened about it now. And I, I'm also having meetings with a rabbi and I was going to have his take as well. But, you know, he is a messianic rabbi. So it's, mm-hmm. I feel like it's going to be a completely different perspective. But this is such an important conversation. And this history lesson just made sense. I think that there's no room for opinions because it was just historical facts. And the the other thing that I would want to leave us with as we think about tonight is uh, 
there have always been Jewish persons that didn't necessarily convert to Christianity per se, that interacted with Christian documents throughout the centuries. And there's always been Christian individuals as well that tried their best to learn Hebrew and interacted with Jewish sources. Sometimes both individuals were largely ignored. Mm. Uh, one book that I've just gotten and anxious to read is a book by uh, Rabbi uh, Soloveitchik. And okay. uh, he was a person in the late 1800s, I think. I'm, I'm not sure if I have the, the century quite right or the decade quite right. But he analyzed the Christian Gospels that were retained inside Jewish circles. Uh, that is non-Christian Jewish circles. The, and he analyzed them and talked about what they meant to a Jewish reader. And his book was published at that same time, but his his works were largely ignored until more recently when somebody did some work and translation work on his on his book. I think, I don't know if it was German or Austrian but or French, but it's one of those that survived. Uh, basically, some of his work was lost in the Holocaust. But um, the, one of the surviving pieces of his work was recently translated into English, and it's the next thing on my reading list, because okay. he talks about Hebrew Gospels and Hebrew books for other New Testament uh, uh, passages as well that have been studied through the years inside Jewish uh, circles that were non-Christian Jewish circles. I would, I, I'm emphasizing that because I don't want to say that Jewish and Christian is separate. There have always been Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and non-Christian Jews. So all three have existed throughout time. Whoa. So far-reaching and so much to consume. Again, like you mentioned how it's so difficult for people to speak on these topics because the depth of the New Testament equals the depth of the Old Testament. But I really appreciate your ability to shine light on both and then also to be able to highlight the gaps you know, that already exists today. I think this is a really fully encompassing perspective and really good for people like me who are starting with nothing. And this is really educating and enlightening and interesting. <laughs> and that, in that Spanish Inquisition I was mentioning earlier, and it goes by other names as it leaves Spain and moves to other regions, a lot of Jewish books were burned uh, because they were considered not in line with the current thought and therefore they needed to be burned. The problem with that is some copies of Jewish Gospels were actually burned too um, in, in some of that. And some of that has been recorded in, um, in the, in the, among Jewish rabbis that kept track of these things. So I think Rabbi Soloveitchik also mentioned some of, the, some of the effects of this Inquisition on, strangely enough, Jewish Gospels that would help explain some of the things scholars are wrestling all this time in the Gospels, but yet they're easily explained if if somebody wouldn't have tried to burn the books. <laughs> wow. Kind of like the worms eating the paper. Like sometimes like events in life impacted the way history played out, even though it did happen in our world, it didn't because we just don't have the proof of it because it was burned or eaten by a worm. <laughs> the, the context of it is has degraded. Yeah, and it, sometimes that kind of thing has produced a difficulty for biblical scholars to recognize and grapple because they're unaware of the things that have happened in history. And now yeah. they think it's this instead of that. But in reality, the explanation can be simple if we don't lose sight of what, what has happened in history. And have faith in 
maybe you don't have a hundred percent of it, but still you have to have faith that you're a part of something that you can lean on and trust and has your best intention at heart. Yes. Well, Dr. James Sedzelak, thank you so much for joining again. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to do it. And one of these (laughs) days we'll get to talk about why the woman had faith in when she reached out and touched his hem of his garment. Yes. Yes, that will happen soon. But until now, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you. Have a good evening.